I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2020 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series, supported by TopCon Agriculture. In today's program, we sit down with Northfield, Minnesota strip-tiller David Legbold to learn more about how he got started in strip-till and some of the early lessons learned transitioning into the practice, along with some of the lasting impressions he's made on the strip-till community at large. Dave was recognized by the 2019 Strip-Till Innovator Program, supported by Montag Manufacturing, for his contributions and advocacy to Strip-Till. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you will be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy Matters and TopCon Agriculture Application Solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX, boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, for David Legvold, being a strip-till teacher and advocate for the practice is built on the willingness to make mistakes and learn from them. Dave recalls his first impressions of strip-till and how he embraced the systematic approach to berm building and targeted fertilizer placement as a pathway to improving soil health and crop consistency. Dave acknowledges that strip-till will build soil and save money. But a bigger reason is to share the commonalities with other producers and continue the learning adventure. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, we chat with the 2019 Strip-Till innovator about his Strip-Till origins and why the practice was an ideal fit for his cropping operation. Dave, just, just starting out, I think it'd be interesting to hear just a little bit of the background on why Strip-Till. How did you get involved in Strip-Till? And I know you had the comment there on it's a pretty foreign concept when it came to your area, but obviously something which piqued your interest and you saw a lot of potential. Yeah. Well, when Mark Bauer called me and asked me to come and look at this really weird machine, I thought, well, okay. And uh, it impressed me right away as being something that was a great compromise between no-till and lot of till. That was the Alpha model. And it was a 16-row machine with long marker arms, a gear and chain and sprocket drive to run the fertilizer distribution system. And uh, I, I, I didn't say, Mark, it looks kind of crude. But then I was invited to see the Beta model. By then, uh, GPS steering for tractors had come in and uh, hydraulic management of the fertilizer works. And I thought, oh, no, this is a pretty sophisticated machine. And I thought, I can do that. Well, fortunately, a year or so down the road, uh, I was asked if if they could come and demo one of those machines on some cropland that I had. And uh, I looked at it, I tried it, and I thought, "That's, that's really pretty neat. Because I had been doing invasive heavy tillage uh, in the past. And I knew this was a good step. Uh, I love the t-shirt that ETS has. It says, I'm only 33% disturbed. And I want my, 
I want my land to be 33% disturbed or less. So Dave, I know this is your 43rd year of farming, is that correct? I think it's my 41 <laughs> year. <laughs> It, it, I think it's about 43 or 44. Okay. Yeah. And 16th year of strip till. Yes. Okay. yes. One of the things I recall from visiting you was you mentioned that year one was scary. Year 16 is scary. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that journey sure. then from where you started to, to where you are. Okay, yes. Year one of trying strip till is scary. This year, year number 16, was even scarier, I think, with uh, the weather conditions. But it really started out with a, uh, an opportunity to work with two colleges in the town of Northfield, Carleton and St. Olaf. And there were a lot of opportunities to have students come and poke around on my farm. And as a retired educator, I thought, this is the best of all worlds. Um, they can come and dig around on my farm and I will learn from them. So they taught me about aggregate stability. And it impressed me that if you leave soil alone, it begins to assume properties from uh, root exudates, from sugars, from all kinds of stuff that I just lump together and call worm snot. It holds the soil together nicely. They also talked talk to me about soil density, bulk density, they called it. And so when you measure a cubic inch of soil that has been beaten up, it weighs quite a bit. If you measure a cubic inch of soil that has been treated right and left alone, it becomes fluffier, less dense. And I could see those properties, but it took some really smart students to inform me that what was going on in the soil was the right thing. And then, uh, of course, my friend is a, a tiling spade, so whenever folks would come, uh, we would dig up a spade full of soil, and there were worms and bugs and tunnels and all sorts of things, and that informed me that the strip-till method was good. I'm not a total strip tiller because uh, we plant our soybeans using a no-till drill. So I only strip till half of the time. But I think uh, it's that journey of seeing the slow progression of your soil healing that was really important to me. And having data to back it up. Your farm has been characterized as kind of a living, breathing laboratory. I've heard it referred to that a couple of times. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the data side and obviously being able to quantify some of the value and the return on strip-till. Talk a little bit about some of the experimentation that you've collaborated on on your farm. Well, obviously, students each year enter programs at St. Olaf, uh, Environmental Studies. Uh, at Carleton, we have a wonderful geology professor who really gets agriculture. So she brings her kids out to the farm and just lets them explore with their soil bores and their spades. And uh, they take soil samples back to the lab and analyze them, and that's great. Uh, we also have um, some students who want to do water quality research. So we have had a uh, saturated buffer in place on our farm, and we had a research student who was 
really digging into it and finding good things that we can do with tile water. Amazingly, uh, the nitrate content coming out of the tile water was pretty low. And so she was tasked with having to explain that. And she basically tied it to the organic matter content of the soil as being able to hold the nutrients and hold the water. Some students have also done infiltration studies and they've developed an infiltrometer, which is nothing more than a, I think it's a three pound coffee can with both ends removed, snuggle it into the soil and pour in 300 milliliters of water and watch how long it takes and time it with your cell phone. And they have found that on heavily tilled soils, it might take four and a half minutes for that amount of water to disappear. But on some of our soils, right outside of my son Mark's house, which is next to ours, uh, it took 18 seconds for that water to disappear, but normally it's about a minute. So that's a good piece of data that informs me about infiltration and also nutrient retention in the soil through good organic matter. Uh, another incident that I don't really razz my son. My son sits here. He has the same kind of hairdo that I do, right next to his, his mother, who had nothing to do with that hairdo. We had a field that belonged to St. Olaf College that needed to be tiled. And so the tiling contractors came in and did the tiling. And then, of course, there's all these nice tile humps that you see down this, the field. And son Mark came in with the uh, mulch finisher and he worked down those, he worked down those tile runs and he worked the field and worked it and worked it. And the really cool thing was that we had data on organic matter for three years before that. And with one significant tillage event with a field color, cultivator, if you will, uh, that soil lost one half of 1% with one significant tillage event. And that was, that was like a hammer on the side of the head that just said, you can't be doing that without losing the properties that make your soil valuable. So I know nutrient management is, is a big tenant of strip-till. It's a, a big reason, a big motivation for getting into the practice. What are some of the things that you've seen or I guess some of the philosophies, approaches you have when it comes to that, incorporating it into your strip-till system? Many years ago, in fact, now I'm on my, my second uh, five-year CSP, Conservation Stewardship Program, uh, contract. And part of that is one of the activities is to place fertilizer two inches below the surface of the soil. The strip-till machine does a beautiful job of that. The fertilizer is placed in the soil. It's not spread, and then I have to field cultivate it in. And so with that in mind, um, I like to get the fertilizer in the ground. In the little diagram that I did on my front porch, <laughs> I tried to, to show graphically how if we spread fertilizer on the top of the soil and then work it in with a disc or a field cultivator, you prepare a seed bed about that, that thick. If you go much deeper, that's not healthy. And then the seeds are placed kind of in the middle. With the strip-till machine, I try to make a, a zone that's about six inches wide and about eight or nine inches deep with all the fertilizer in that area. Because to me, it just, it just seems that a corn plant would rather grow down than out. What do you think, Frank? Yeah. Okay, 
<laughs> so uh, creating that, that environment for plants to grow where all of the fertilizer is placed where the plant's gonna do the growing, that's great. I've learned uh, one of the mistakes uh, I made was to tailor my fertilizer mix with 80 pounds of nitrogen in the zone pre-plant. That's a little hot, I learned. I was hard on my seedlings. So now it's down around 40 pounds, and then I put on the full dose of P and K and sulfur and zinc. I try to stay away from liquid snake oils because the soil warrior doesn't like that very well. And so nutrient management is certainly not putting it all on at once. It's spoon feeding the crop as we go. Then we have a um, uh, side dresser, which has uh, yetter uh, disc insertion tools. Uh, it's a great tool to put on liquid 28%. Uh, Sunmark has invented uh, a device or two devices to carry, of all things, salt spreaders from the back of pickup trucks in the winter. You see them spreading salt as they plow snow. So he put those on the back, <clears throat> and so now he can spread cover crop seed and put on the last dose of nitrogen fertilizer to bring it up to, uh, to where we want it. We've also done experimental research with college students who come and design a, an experimental regimen of strip trial corn and uh, some will get zero additional nitrogen. Some will get 30 pounds, some will get 60, some will get 200, some will get 400. And they've been able to um, document that fertilizer, you can use a linear increase, but the yield is kind of a parabolic thing. It doesn't get any better the more you put on. And it's really humbling to have a tall, willowy, blonde research student come up to you and say, you know, Dave, you lost your ass on that one over there. <laughs> and that's true. You can lose handy amounts of money if you just over-fertilize. So uh, we try to be stingy Norwegians, and hopefully we're successful. Maybe that's good for the environment, <laughs> being Norwegian, that is. <laughs> So efficiency uh, is a big part uh, of your strip-till journey, too. And, and I, I know kind of experiencing gains in that, you know, has probably come with some hard lessons learned. Talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things or maybe the setbacks or challenges that you've had to deal with and then overcome and learn from to improve throughout the course of your, your career. Well, the, the fertilizer rates, that was one thing that uh, was, was kind of stunning too much, well, it's, it's sort of like beer. Some is good, too much, not so good. So we've, we've learned the hard way that too much fertilizer is not advantageous. Mechanically, we really haven't had any hard lessons with the equipment that we use. I'll hark back to the person who invented the soil warrior when I commented to him, wow, Mark, there's a lot of steel in this machine. He said, that's right. I hate to flip and fix stuff. So we haven't had to learn about not breaking equipment. 
And we've also learned a, a very nice thing is that we don't have to pick rocks, which is a, a great thing. But as far as setbacks, I think since we made the switch, there have been fewer setbacks, which I know that sounds a little haughty, but uh, it's true. <laughs> Things have gone well. When you want to keep advancing, that's the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Going back to the, uh, the experimentation and research side, you know, obviously you've been fortunate to work with a couple of excellent schools and students. What areas, you know, particular to Striptil, do you feel we need more research? You know, what, what do you think needs to be done? <clears throat> yes, there are some research programs that are, they're funded by commodity groups. And so the research tends to be satisfactory to your funders. I brand that as centralized research because I don't own the data from that. It's done in other locations other than my farm. What I really would like to see is a great deal more decentralized research where if there's an opportunity to research on your farm, you can decide what you want to research. Do you want to research hybrid varieties? Do you want to research fertilizer rates? Do you want to research soil qualities? Do you want to research water quality? And it happens on your farm. I think that's where we really need to have more research happening on the farm. We'll get back to our discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. And welcome in Dr. Ray Acevedo, former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for Topcon Agriculture. In this week's technology tips from Dr. Ray, he shares some thoughts on what lessons were learned by farmers, particularly on the technology side, in 2019. You know, I would say, you know, what's pretty impressive to me is that, you know, I really started to notice in the latter half of 2019 I would say are, you know, various large farms, you know, with a very progressive agronomy program and also independent agronomic consultants or regional size agronomy firms. You know, I started seeing a lot more of this, like, take matters into my own hands, you know, grassroots approach for getting data to where you where you want it to be and uh, making decisions on their own without having to go to outside sources. You know, you know, if we were looking for like an automated prescription tool or something like that. People started to actually go, what I would call, go back to the basics. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from David Legvold as he breaks down some of the benefits and lasting value of being involved in the strip till community. Shifting gears just a little bit, I mean, one of the elements of this uh, program here certainly is not only uh, what you're doing on your own farm, some of the results you're seeing with strip till, some of the successes, but also beyond that and, you know, how you're working with other strip tillers, other farmers that are interested in strip tilling or perhaps need to be. Talk a little bit about your role or how you view your responsibility as someone in a position that has a lot of experience both in farming and strip till and what knowledge there is to pass on as an advocate. Well, first of all, you have to understand it's really hard to make a teacher stop teaching. So I keep on teaching. And whenever there are questions, I try to address those. And so when my phone rings and we're in the middle of breakfast or in the middle of lunch, my wife will get a little upset. Just, just tell them no. Just tell them no. 
But um, I think it's, it's probably a mission that I've been privileged to have to speak with other producers about what their questions are. And I think it's the people from environmental tillage systems who occasionally feed my phone number to farmers from Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Ohio, all over. And so I'll get these calls and people want to find out specific questions about how strip-till works for me. In addition, I've had the privilege to mentor several farmers through the process of deciding to switch from conventional to strip-till. So it's, uh, it's, it's really strange to visit with somebody from Nebraska and their major, major concern is retaining moisture. And in Minnesota, my concern is maybe getting rid of water or managing soil in such a way that we have infiltration. They wanna preserve organic matter in water. I wanna have a facility that allows water to go in. And strip-till and no-till is a great way to manage both challenges. So I'd say there are many farmers who have made a decision to move to strip-till. Uh, they'll call me back in a year or two and say, it's, it's really fine, I, I should have done it sooner. And that's generally the case. How do some of those conversations go? I know you, know, you may be referred to somebody, but you know, in the event that you're getting called by someone or you're talking to somebody yep. locally about strip till. And, you know, I'm curious, we, we have a very diverse group here with us this week, uh, you know, very experienced strip tillers. And I know I've talked to a few people this morning that are just starting out, you know, and they have a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, from your perspective, how do those conversations go? The first question I like to ask uh, a caller is what, what are, why do you want to do this? What, what led you to question what you're doing now and want to do something different? And then to listen to the producer talk about what their objectives for their, their farm are. And then that gives me a clue of how to proceed. If they're interested in soil quality, then we'll have a discussion about what I see happening on my farm. If they're interested in saving fuel, I can give them data on how much fuel it takes me to run my soil warrior. Uh, so I try to find out what are the needs of the producer. And I've come to find out that many of those people have a great deal to teach me. When this award goes forward, it's not for one person. It's really for all the people out there who have knowledge and are doing strip till. So I would be pleased to be a representative of all of the people that are doing this. And uh, if they call and say, I've got a question for you about this, that's, that's just fine with me. What are some of the questions that you find you get from people that are just getting into the practice? Oh, uh, yield is usually the, f the big one. How does it do for yield? And uh, I think there's two kinds of yield. There's coffee shop yield. And I generally take the yield that I hear about in the coffee shop and I multiply it by 0 0.82. 0 0.82 happens to be the LWF. Do you know what the LWF is? That's the lying weasel factor. <laughs> <laughs> then, <laughs> then we get pretty close to the yield. 
So when we talk about yield, uh, sometimes I'll try to weave around and say, uh, I, I prefer not to talk about yield. I prefer to talk about, are we leaving dollars in the field or are we leaving bushels in the field? And with strip till and that stuff, I think I'm, I'm grabbing every dollar I can. I'm not fertilizing and managing so that I get the greatest yields. I want, I want the best return. So yield is the, is the big question. Another question is, how much does that machine cost? Wow, that's a lot. I say, yeah, it is. However, let's put it in perspective. So you have a, a big ripper and a 500 horse tractor and a rock picker and a field cultivator, right? Yep. Consider that to be assets in the bank. You can get rid of those. Are you available to talk with your NRCS people about government programs? Oh, never thought about that. What other incentives are there? And you have to think about your own checkbook. So there's three sources. Equipment you can liquidate, assistance from uh, government agencies, and your own checkbook. And, oh yeah, and then your banker too. That always helps. Um, so uh, trying to weave through the financial uh, labyrinth that farmers approach when they want to make an equipment change that is significant is sometimes difficult, but certainly not insurmountable. So those are the two major questions. Sure. Uh, oh yeah, the other one is horsepower. What do you pull a 12 row with? And I say, I pull it with a tractor that's 25 years old. 180 horsepower, really, yeah. So I don't need my 500 horse tractor? No, you don't. So horsepower is a, a big question too. One of the other things that comes up too is, is obviously um, the systematic element of strip till and obviously that it's part of your entire farming mm -hmm. approach. Talk a little bit about how you've incorporated that into your planting, harvesting, you know, and how that all ties together on your farm. And again, you mentioned yeah. it's more about dollars than bushels when you're kind of looking at, at each season. Right. I've tried to develop a system in cooperation with my son that is uh, environmentally responsible. I like to say we practice restorative farming restorative, regenerative, like we heard this morning, similar terms for can we raise corn and beans and alfalfa and wheat and not damage the soil irreparably. Uh, so that's the kind of system that I try to, to work forward. So the, the strip till is a big part of that. Uh, coming back to no-till beans, that's a big part of it. Keeping track of organic matter and just looking over the field to see if it looks really trashy. My father, I think, would have words for me by, for all the trash that's left on the farm. And the first time he saw me no-tilling soybeans, I got caught in a little rainstorm, and I came home full of mud, and the field looked terrible. And my father, who was a God-fearing man, said, you know, Dave, that field doesn't look for sh shingles. And then when we harvested, he was hauling the beans home, and I was doing the combining. 
And as we walked from the bin site up to the house for dinner, he said, you know, that's that no-till, that's the way to go. And in one year, my father was approaching 90 and he had changed over. So it's, if he can do it, somebody else can too. <laughs> so that system, I think, is very apparent and the virtues sell themselves. What are your thoughts on just kind of the, the role and the responsibility that, you know, strip tillers, no tillers, uh, you know, farmers in general, what, what role can they be playing, obviously, when mm -hmm. we're talking about preserving that farm, making it better for the next generation? It's tough to be out there alone. So how many of you in this room are strip tillers now? That's a nice sea of hands. So that means that we're not out there alone. I think it's very important to be able to, to have somebody to talk to. In the little video out here, you will see a colleague of mine, John Becker, who this year made the transition to strip till. And we had many, many phone conversations. And so he was leaning on me, just as I have leaned on others. So we have a, we have a good network to lean on each other and ask those questions. I believe it's important for equipment dealers to have a list of people that prospective converts can lean on and pass it out. You know, here sits Caitlin. She is very free to pass out my phone number to have somebody lean on me. So thank you for that, Caitlin, I think. <laughs> so that's, that, I see that as a, a role that we all have to make sure that we are available for people who want to learn to do that. So I, I think that making yourself available and knowing that that person has a different answer than you do, but you might get to the same place, that's important to realize too. So my way is not always the right way. Right, dear? <laughs> One of my last questions here was just, you know, was curious, through your accumulated experience here, um, you know, do you have maybe three or, or five just bits of advice or, or wisdom, you know, that you would kind of offer to whether it's the experienced strip tiller or the, the strip tiller who's just starting their journey? I guess the first piece of advice I would have is don't dilly dally. If you're going to do it, do it and don't look back. That's what I did, and I have not been sorry about that at all, and I've learned as I've progressed. So decide to do it and do it. Figure out your finances, finances fairly early on in partnership with your agronomist, with your banker, with your spouse, with your family, with your business partners. That's very important to have that in place. And then uh, the third piece of advice I would give is uh, find a way to get some data. I am a, I was selected as a 4R advocate a couple of years ago, and that was one thing that was really important to find that there are four R's to fertilizer management, but there needs to be a fifth R, and that's research and it needs to be done on your dirt. Well, thank you, Dave, for sharing some of your early experience and evolution of your strip-till system. And you can learn more about the Strip-Till Innovator Program supported by Montag Manufacturing at striptillfarmer.com. 
Again, we'd like to thank and recognize our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for helping make this podcast series possible. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program. So feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Striptill F-A-R-M-R, and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2020 series. For David Legbold, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>